welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, I invite you one final time to open up to the Gospel of Luke. And at the end here, Luke chapter 24, we're going to find a, what, what looks like a notably short conclusion. Uh, some might even suggest Luke's close is a little anticlimactic, considering all of the astonishing things that have recently occurred. Christ's crucifixion, then his resurrection, his appearing on the road to Emmaus, appearing again to the disciples. Last week, giving the Great Commission... And at the very end, the conclusion's only four verses. Just four verses. We should consider that for just one moment. What if the Chronicles of Christianity stopped right there? If that was it, what if, what if we received no epistles from Peter or John or James? What if there existed no record of a Pharisee who was named Saul had a conversion experience, and then we know him now as the Apostle Paul. What if none of his excursions were never recorded? You know, what if it all just ended right there at verse 53? We must admit that the Great Commission that we, that we studied last week, the one that Christ gave... Uh, It offers a gigantic climax to the story, to Luke's gospel. It is a fitting apex to this this story that began 23 chapters again now, 23 chapters earlier, with the son being born of a virgin, having been visited by shepherds while lying in a manger, then he matures into a, a prophet and a preacher, lives a sinless life perfectly. Then after choosing 12 of his followers, his disciples, the reader watches the story unfold, the the life of Christ as it is revealed to them, God's ways of truth and righteousness and love and mercy and grace. Then after living about, uh, about 30 years, Jesus displays himself to the world as a Savior, as He hung upon a cross, bearing the sins of evil men. And of course, we know the last several weeks, He rises from the dead. Then He offers this command in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the, thir- from the, dead on the third day, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then he tells them, go into all the world. Go tell everybody, for you are witnesses of these things. And and then in verse 50, the Gospel of Luke ends like this. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. 
While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. The end. Think about that for a second. What would people think if the Bible ended right there? If that was the end, you know, it it would surely supply a beautiful novel. Many people throughout history would still read this book. But what if it ended right there? What if this is all we had? What, what if this is it right here? How would the church function today? You ever think about that? Folks, there has to be more. The ending of Luke demands it. There, there must rise a continuing testimony of Scripture beyond the giving of the Great Commission in the end of this gospel. And this is what Luke is preparing his readers for through, through this crucial ending. Very crucial ending. It is an end designed to introduce a whole new beginning. You surely noticed how how verses 50 to 53 in Luke uh, offer a mirrored reflection of our scripture reading earlier from the first chapter of Acts, that introduction to the book of Acts. So verses 50 to 53 were never crafted, were never intended to be the end, all right? If so, they would provide the gospel a pretty unsatisfactory conclusion. In fact, if you were to survey the other three gospels as well, go to the ends of them and, and, and read the ends of the other three gospels, they would each provide, you would see, an equally abrupt conclusion if there existed nothing else to follow. A very brief and quick end. You know, folks, this is, not, this is not intended to provide a conclusion, but to supply a transition into Luke, Volume 2, Acts of the Apostles. That, that is the purpose. Hallelujah. The four conclusions that you see in the four Gospels are not the end. Not the end at all. Only the beginning. They, never, they were never intended to be the end. And, and since we're in the topic... Uh, of the conclusions of the gospel, especially Luke. Might as well bring to mention now, because I don't know when we'll get back into specifically studying a gospel again. Might as well bring it up now because of these endings. If you ever grappled with the awkward close to Mark's gospel, if you read through that and you've ever struggled with the awkward close to that and and, and if you know, some of you might know, there is a theological dispute about the conclusion of Mark. There's, there's a dispute that surrounds that. I'll offer just a brief footnote here that may supply some of you a little bit of relief. I know it does for me. The debate isn't earth-shattering, but after the examination of the oldest uh, gospel manuscripts that were unearthed, the ones earliest to the period of Christ, the, cop- the copies that were written closest to the time of Christ, there's arisen a disagreement on how the Gospel of Mark ends. You might not have known that. Some of your Bible versions will make reference to it by inserting a numeric footnote beginning at verse 9. 
Some other versions, as, as mine does, display the ending in, in square brackets. This is due to a debate over how abruptly Mark's gospel should have ended. The ending of Mark, it, it doesn't provoke a controversy over orthodoxy or over salvation because no essential Christian doctrine is established or compromised in that small area, that bracketed area. So, so I don't lie awake at night fretting over it. I don't. Um, I don't fret over how the Gospel of Mark should end. In fact, I'm not even going to offer my opinion on how Mark should end because I realize that some Christians may carry pitchforks in their vehicles. <laughs> and sharp farm implements is no way for a pastor to finish out the year. You know what I'm saying? No, I, I'm just kidding. I, I favor the inclusion uh, of the longer close in Mark. But if Mark were to end in verse 8, an abrupt ending to the gospel doesn't, doesn't bother me much. doesn't keep me awake at night. None of the four gospels were written to offer a terminal ending. They're not an ending. Instead, they all supply the expectation that there's a new beginning. There's a new beginning and a new covenant for God's people. And these closing words of Luke do not provide a conclusion. They just give an intermission. So as you're reading, you can go get a cup of coffee before you start in to the second book written by Luke, that intro to volume two, Acts of the Apostles. You know, most of you are probably aware, Luke wrote both books. And that is one of the reasons why the ending of the Gospel of Luke so closely reflects the opening scene in Acts. The most important function of verses 50 through verse 53 are to signal a transition from Jesus' promise that there would be a giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and that becomes an end with a promising of a beginning. The book of Acts chronicles the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of the Apostles, which, which ensued directly after Pentecost. Um, the transition at the end of the Gospels is remarkably similar to a final admonition in the closing chapters of Malachi. That is how the Old Testament ended. Uh, the, war, the Lord said through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The end. Well, you talk about an awkward ending of the Old Testament. This is the way Israel was left hanging for 400 years. That was their end. But then, when you get to the beginning of the Gospels, there appears this forerunner, John the Baptist, who's in the spirit of Elijah, and we see a voice as one crying in the wilderness, Behold, make the path straight for the Lord. 
That all accompanies the birth of Christ, and the Lord himself comes in, in flesh and blood, and, and he ends up walking right into his temple. He does visit the temple. So the awkward close of the Old Testament promises that God's people must wait for the Lord himself to send a messenger, and he will come to his temple. We see that the intro to the Gospels satisfy that promise, satisfy that expectation. And the awkward close to the Gospels promises that God's people must wait for the giving of the Holy Spirit until they're clothed with power from on high. And then the intro to Acts satisfies that expectation. Folks, the the Bible is an incredible work of literature. Incredible work of literature that 40 different men, uh, some of whom were contemporaries, some of whom had never met one another and were separated by centuries. And they knit together this incredible story of redemption. The, the only rational conclusion is that it is divine. The Word of God is divine. By the way, what does another awkward ending tell us to anticipate? An awkward ending at the end of Revelation. What does the New Testament at its close tell God's people we must await in Revelation chapter 22? Again, we are waiting for the return of Christ. For he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done And we reply, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So again, we are waiting as God's people. What a glorious day that is going to be. What a glorious day when Christ will return for his redeemed. Yet, you know, supplying just a transition to Acts, it's not the only function of Luke's conclusion today. There are are a few notable things that we, we need to observe about these verses as we wrap up this series through the gospel. And the first is seen in Luke uh, chapter 24 in verse 50. Verse 50. This This is an important one right here. Jesus and his apostles have now returned from Galilee to Jerusalem as as they were commanded. Acts chapter 1 assures that Jesus appeared to them on numerous occasions over a period of 40 days. Uh, So Jesus was crucified at Passover. That was a Friday. He was raised and appeared on the first day of the week. So Sunday marked the beginning of this 40-day period that Jesus appeared. Pentecost occurs 51 days after Passover. You might say, but I thought it was 50 days after Passover. No, it's 51 days after Passover because according to the law... Uh, Israel was not to start counting the days until the day after Passover. So the counting of 50 days started on Saturday. With that calculation, Pentecost also fell as, as the church was birthed on the first day of the week. That was another Sunday. So the church was birthed on a Sunday. Just a little gee whiz information here. Doing the math confirms that this scene of Christ's ascension occurs seven or eight days before Pentecost. So I would suggest, if I were to 
propose today, I would suggest that Jesus ascended on Sunday, one week prior to Pentecost. So, so the apostles had a period of one week there. I, I can't confirm that from Scripture. I, I just think that it's interesting that uh, of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, uh, whenever a day is attached to it, it was always on Sunday, always on the first day of the week. And, and that's another reason that, that John refers to it in Revelation as the Lord's Day. Now, now, I don't have to die on that hill. I don't have to die on that hill because we know that G- Jesus Christ was not establishing a new Sabbath day for Christians. We no longer rest in only a day or don't only rest temporarily for a Sabbath day, which Colossians assures only served as a shadow of what was to come. But the substance of our rest, what we rest in, is the finished atonement of Christ at Calvary. That's where our rest is found. And Hebrews 4 says, be diligent to enter his rest. But likely falling on the last Sunday before Pentecost. Verse 50 says this, Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany. They left from Jerusalem. And then Bethany, if you're you're familiar with where that is placed, leaving from Jerusalem, you have to go to the east, across the Mount of Olives, and then about two miles further to find Bethany. Jesus went beyond the Mount of Olives to get to Bethany by crossing over the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, that same place where he would ascend later in the day from all of it. Why did Jesus progress all the way to Bethany? Think about that. Ever thought about that when you read that? It's only a half, half mile to the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. It's two more miles to go all the way to Bethany. Well, think about it. Who lives in Bethany? Mary, Martha, Lazarus. There's a guy there that Jesus healed named uh, Simon the leper, right? They're all in Bethany. Mark 14, verse 3 tells us about Simon the leper. So imagine to yourself that today is a Sunday. I know it's a big leap, but, but try. Today... Today is a Sunday, and it is your last day. It's your last day on earth before you're going to go to heaven. You know this for certain. You aren't ever going to see your best friends again for a really long time, and you've got a few hours. You've got a few hours before you have to go. I know you're probably going to leave church and go straight home and spend all of your last quality time Buffing your Porsche, right? That's where you're going to head first. No. You're going to quickly put a for sale sign on that Porsche and take the first cash offer from your neighbor and send that money on ahead for treasure in heaven. That's what you're going to do with it so that you can enjoy it when you get there. Completely hypothetical. Notice I didn't bring up a boat, Jerry. Didn't talk about any boat today. And then next, after that, you're going to visit your friends. Wait a second, no. Your friends are so important to you, you're going to forget about everything that you have. 
all of your possessions, and you're just going to leave it behind. It'll, it'll fuel the, ba- the great cosmic incinerator when Christ returns. And instead, you're going to go straight to the homes of the people that you love. Be honest with yourself. You've got a little time left. You're going to go and visit the people you love. Reviewing the life of Christ. We've seen it now for over three years, well over three, almost four years we've been studying him. His only cherished investment on earth was his friends. He nurtured time with them up until the day he left. His entire life was devoted to his relationships. Folks, we are the reason that he gave himself up to suffer and die for our sins. Because of that, he wanted you to enjoy his fellowship with him. John said in 1 John 1, 3, We have seen and heard what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It's all about fellowship, folks. It's all about friends. all about friendship. Jesus invested his life in friends. We would do well to not wait until our last day on earth to learn that lesson. Folks, this passage shed new light on Luke 12, where a man in a crowd said this to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me? a judge or arbitrator over you. Clearly the fellowship between those brothers had been broken by a dispute over material possessions, the the inheritance. You remember what Jesus' reply was? Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And since Jesus clearly did not own anything, just the clothes that he wore, he demonstrated how a life in Christ is not invested 